Chapter Six, Part Seven of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Redman. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume One by John Bagnall Bury. Chapter Six, Part Seven. Second and Third European Expeditions of Darius, Battle of Marathon. Having suppressed the rebellion, Persia had three things to do. Greek Asia was to be reorganized, Persian Europe was to be reconquered, and those free Greek states which had made war on Persia and occupied Sardis were to be punished. Artaphernes caused the territories of the Ionian cities to be measured and surveyed, and regulated the tributes accordingly. It was also ordained that the cities should no longer have the right of making war upon one another, but there was more to be done. The revolt had taught Persia that the system of tyrannies did not answer, and it was now resolved to make an experiment of the opposite policy. The despots were abolished, and democratic governments were set up. The world may well have been surprised to see the great despotism of all favouring the institution of democracy. It was a concession to the spirit of the Greeks, which reflects credit on the wisdom of Darius. The king's son-in-law, Mardonius, was sent to reassert Persian supremacy in Thrace and Macedonia, and through Macedonia he proposed to advance into Greece in order to punish the two cities which had helped the Ionian rebels. A fleet sailed along the coast and subdued the island of Thasos on its way. Thrace was reduced, and Macedonia, then under King Alexander, submitted, a submission which was to be avenged in distant days to come by a descendant and a namesake. But the Greek expedition could not be carried out, since a disaster had befallen the fleet, which was partly wrecked in a storm off the perilous promontory of Athos. Mardonius returned. He had lost many ships, but he had fulfilled the more important parts of his task. But Darius was sternly resolved that Athens and Eretria should not escape without chastisement. Their connection with the burning of Sardis had deeply incensed him. It seemed an insult which the great king's pride could not let pass unnoticed. Moreover, Hippias, the banished tyrant, was at the court of Susa, urging an expedition against the city which had cast him out. It was decided that the new expedition should not be sent by way of Thrace and Macedonia, but should move straight across the Aegean Sea. The cities of the Persian seaboard were commanded to equip warships and transports for cavalry, and heralds were sent to the chief cities of free Greece that were not at war with Persia, requiring the tokens of submission, earth and water. In most cases the tokens were given, and among others by Aegina, the enemy of Athens. The command of the army was entrusted to Datis and Artaphernes, a nephew of Darius, and they were accompanied by the aged tyrant Hippias, 
who hoped to rule once more over his native country. The armament, six hundred galleys strong, according to Herodotus, setting sail from Samos, made first for Naxos, the island where Aristagoras had failed. The inhabitants abandoned the city and fled up into the hills, and the Persians burned the town. The sacred island of Delos was scrupulously spared, but soon after the Persians had departed, it was shaken by an earthquake, and the unwonted event was noted as a sign of coming troubles. Having sailed from isle to isle, subduing the Cyclades, the fleet went up the channel between Euboea and Attica, and, reducing Charistus by the way, reached the territory of Eretria. It is strange to find that Athens and Eretria had made no common preparations to meet a common danger. Eretria was severed from Attica only by a narrow water, and yet there was no joint action. Athens indeed directed the colonists whom she had settled in the territory of her dependency Chalcis to assist their Eretrian neighbours, but she sent no other help. We hear of sharp engagements outside the walls of the Euboean city, but within seven days it was delivered over to the invaders by the treachery of some leading burghers. The flames which consumed the temples of Eretria were a small set-off against the flames of Sardis. The inhabitants were enslaved. Of all the Greek towns which were involved in the strife between Europe and Asia, none was more ill-fated than Eretria. The Persian generals had accomplished the lesser half of their task. It now remained to deal with the other city which had defied their king. Crossing over the strait, they landed their army in the Bay of Marathon. For the second time, an exiled tyrant of Athens came down from Eretria to recover his power. The father had come fifty years before with but a few mercenaries. The son came now with the forces of Asia. Yet so far as winning support at Athens was concerned, the foreign host was the weakest argument of Hippias. The house of the Pisistratids had many bitter enemies, but none was more bitter than one who had also known what it was to rule as a tyrant, Miltiades, son of Simon. We have seen how he returned from the Chersonese after the Ionic Revolt. His enemies accused him of the crime of oppressive rule in the Chersonese, but he was acquitted by his fellow-citizens, to whom he had brought the gift of Lemnos and Imbros. His hatred of the Pisistratids was natural. They had put to death his father Simon, celebrated as a victor in the Olympian chariot race. It is not surprising that Miltiades, who was active as a party man, who was known to be a hot foe of the tyrants, who had probably more first-hand knowledge of the Persians than any other man at Athens, was chosen as the strategos of his tribe. He was the soul of the resistance which his country now offered to the invader. Athens had changed much since Hippias had been cast out, though a generation had not passed. Athenian character had been developed under free democratical institutions. It has been said that if the Athenians had not been radically different from their former selves, Hippias would easily have recovered Athens. In other words, if the Persian invasion had happened twenty years sooner, the same stand would not have been made against it as Athens now made. The liberty of Greece would have succumbed. 
but it was no mere accident that the blow had not been aimed twenty years sooner. The Persian invasion was brought about by the same political causes which enabled Athens to withstand it. The Ionian Greeks would not have risen in revolt but for the growth of a strong sentiment against tyrannies, the same cause which overthrew the Pisistratids and created Marathonian Athens. On the other hand, if the Ionic revolt had broken out before the expulsion of Hippias, Athens would have taken no part in it, and the Persian invasion of Greece might not have followed. As the story is told by our historian, one would almost think that the enemy had already landed on Attic soil before the Athenians bethought themselves how they were to defend their city and their land. A fast runner was dispatched in hot haste to Lacedaemon to bear the news of the fall of Eretria and the jeopardy of Athens. The Lacedaemonians said that they would help Athens, they were bound to help a member of their league, but religious scruples forbade them to come at once. They must wait till the full moon had passed. But when the full moon had passed, it was too late. The whole army of the Athenians may have numbered about nine thousand. The commander-in-chief was Callimachus, the polemarch of the year, and the grave duty of organising the defence rested upon him and the ten generals of the tribal regiments who formed a council of war. Fortunately for Athens, Callimachus seems to have been willing to hearken to the counsels of Miltiades, and the joint authority of the polemarch and the most influential general outweighed the scruples of their less adventurous colleagues. The enemy had landed near Marathon and clearly intended to advance on unwalled Athens by land and sea. The question was whether the Athenian army should await their approach and give them battle within sight and reach of the Acropolis, or should more boldly go forth to find them. This was a question which it devolved upon the Athenian people itself to decide. The hour when the assembly met to deliberate on this question was the most fateful moment in the whole episode. Miltiades proposed that the army should march to Marathon and meet the Persians there. To have proposed and carried this decree is probably the greatest title of Miltiades to his immortal fame. But if the tyrants had not pulled down the city walls, it would assuredly never have been carried. The plain of Marathon, stretching along a sickle-shaped line of coast, is girt on all other sides by the hills which drop down from Pentelicus and Parnes. In the northern part, and on the extreme south, the soil is marshy, and the plain is cleft into two halves by the path of a torrent coming down from the hills through the northern valley in which the village of Marathon is situated. Two roads lead from Athens to Marathon. The main road, turning eastward, passes between the mountains of Hymettus and Pentelicus, and traversing the deem of Pellini, skirting Mount Pentelicus, and then turning due north when it reaches the coast, it enters the plain of Marathon from the south. The other road, which is somewhat shorter but more difficult, continues northward, past the deem of Sophysia, and running into the hills north of Pentelicus finds two issues in the Marathonian plain. It divides into two paths which encircle the hill of Catronae. The northern path goes on to Marathon and descends into the plain from the north along the banks of the torrent, 
the other passing by a sanctuary of heracles and descending the valley of avlona issues in the plain at its southwestern corner close to the village which is now called vrana callimachus took the northern road by Cephisia, and encamped in the valley of avlona not far from the shrine of heracles the choice of this admirable position was more than half the victory the athenians were themselves unassailable in the lower valley except at a great disadvantage and they commanded not only the mountain road by which they had come but also the main road and the southern gate of the plain for the persians in attempting to reach that gate would be exposed to their flank attack at this period athens had accomplished strategists and the brilliant campaign against boeotia and chalcis sixteen years before has prepared us for the ability which our commanders now displayed in the presence of a graver peril the persians had encamped on the north side of the torrent bed and their ships were riding at anchor beside them it was to their interest to bring on a pitched battle in the plain as soon as possible on the other hand the athenians had everything to gain by waiting in their impregnable position if they waited long enough they might hope for help from sparta help from another quarter had already come when they reached the sanctuary of heracles they were joined by a band of a thousand plataeans who in gratitude for the protection of athens against the theban yoke now came to help her in the hour of jeopardy some days passed and then as the greeks remained immovable the persians would wait no longer having embarked a part of the army including the whole body of their cavalry they made ready to move upon athens by land and sea the land force must follow the main road by Pelini, and was therefore prepared for battle in case the greeks should attack them before they defiled from the plain another critical moment had come for the athenians but the polemarch and the generals had probably decided already what should be done when this contingency arose that miltiades as before in the assembly so now in the camp urged the boldest course we may well believe but the supreme direction belonged to the polemarch and he decided to attack the enemy as they marched southward callimachus whether he acted of his own wit or by the counsel of others showed now a skill in tactics as consummate as the skill in strategy which we have already witnessed outnumbered by the foe if the athenian line had formed itself in equal depth throughout it would have swept the persian centre into the sea but then it would have been caught in a trap between the sea and ships on one side and the persian wings which would have closed in on the other accordingly callimachus made his own centre long and shallow so that it would cover the whole persian centre while his wings of the normal depth would be opposed to the wings of the enemy the long persian line crossed the bed of the torrent and advanced along the shore a large portion was detached to mask the greek position a precaution which was dictated by elementary principles of strategy in order either to prevent or to repel a flank attack with these troops to cover them the rest of the host might march securely past the greek army had perhaps already appeared in the recess of the hills at the mouth of the valley of avlona callimachus himself led the right wing the plataean allies were posted on the extreme left 
Among those who fought for their country on this day we must notice one who, though he held no post of command, was destined to hold a greater place in Athenian history than any of his fellow warriors, Themistocles, the son of Neocles, who fought in the regiment of the Leontid tribe. Another of worldwide fame, Aeschylus, the tragic poet, also bore shield and spear and charged the Medes on this memorable day. When the Greeks drew near to the line of the enemy they were met by volleys of arrows from the eastern archers, and to escape this danger they advanced at a run into close quarters. The hoplites did not fail the generals. Their valour secured the victory which masterly strategy and tactics had prepared. All fell out as had been foreseen. The Athenian centre was driven back towards the hills by the enemy's centre, where the best troops, including the Persians themselves, were stationed. But the Athenian wings completely routed the wings of their foe. Then, closing in and leaving the vanquished to reach their ships if they could, they turned upon the victorious Persians who were following the retreating Greek centre. Here again they were utterly victorious, breaking up the array of the enemy and pursuing them in confusion to the shore, where all who escaped the sword were picked up by the ships. Only a portion of the Persian army had been engaged. The main body doubtless embarked as soon as they saw the first signs of the disruption of the force on which they had relied to cover them from the enemy. It was not a long battle. The Athenian loss was small, 192 slain, and the Persian loss was reckoned at about 6,400, a number whose very moderation stamps it as probably near the truth. Datis and Artaphernes had still an immense host, which might retrieve the fortune of the campaign. Athens was not yet out of danger. The Persian squadron sailed down the straits and rounded Cape Sunium, while the victorious army, leaving one regiment on the field of their triumph to guard the slain and the spoils, marched back to defend Athens. They halted outside the city, near the shrine of Heracles in Sinosarges, on the banks of the Elysus, and they beheld the fleet of the enemy riding off Phalerum. But it did not put into shore, and presently the whole squadron began to draw out to sea. Datis had abandoned his enterprise. Perhaps he had sailed within sight of Athens only on the chance of finding it undefended, and when he saw that the army was there shrank from another conflict with the hoplites. But a Spartan army two thousand strong cannot have been far from Athens now. It had set out on the day after the full moon, and it reached Athens soon after the battle. We may guess that tidings of the approach of the Spartans, if not their actual presence, had something to do with the sudden departure of the invaders, who, though they had received an unlooked-for check, had not endured an overwhelming defeat. The Spartans arrived too late for the battle. They visited the field, desiring to gaze upon the Persian corpses, and departed home praising the exploit of the Athenians. The scene of the battle is still marked by the mound which the Athenians raised over their own dead. Callimachus was buried there, and Cynegyrus, a brother of the poet Aeschylus, who was said to have seized a Persian galley and held it until his arm was severed by an axe. 
Legend grew up quickly round the battle, and there was no historian to record at the time what had actually happened, so that when a generation had passed, the facts were partly forgotten and partly transfigured. Three motives were at work in this transfiguration. The love of the marvellous, the vanity of the Athenians, and the desire of his family to exalt the services of Miltiades. Gods and heroes fought for Athens. Ghostly warriors moved among the ranks. The panic terror of the Persians at the Greek charge was ascribed to Pan, and the worship of this god was revived in a cave consecrated to him under the northwest slope of the Acropolis. Out of this grew a story which added a charming incident to the chain of Marathonian memories. The fast runner, Pheidippides, speeding through Arcadia on his way to seek Spartan help, had been accosted by Pan himself, who had asked why the Athenians neglected his worship, and promised them favours in the future. But the supernatural can be easily allowed for. It was more serious that the extraordinarily brilliant strategy and tactics to which the success was chiefly due should have faded out of the story, and that Marathon should have been regarded as entirely a soldier's battle. It was soberly asserted and believed that those wonderful warriors had taken their enemy aback by advancing against them for a whole mile at a run. Miltiades, who was doubtless the heart and soul of the campaign, was raised by the Marathonian myth to be the commander-in-chief on the day of battle, and it was explained that the chief command each day devolved upon the generals in rotation. This was an arrangement which came into force a few years later, when the polemarch lost his importance, but it supplied the legend with a ready means of setting aside Callimachus in favour of Miltiades. We need not follow the myth further. The Battle of Marathon was caught up into a cloud of glory which obscured the truth of the events, and historical criticism has been able to rescue only the barest outline. Callimachus, in particular, received less than his due, overshadowed by the fame of Miltiades, and it is interesting to find that there was at least a stone in Athens, set up perhaps by his son, which recorded the services of the Polemarch of the Athenians in the struggle with the Medes. A few precious words had been preserved. One mysterious incident connected with the battle must be numbered among those historical puzzles which have never been cleared up. When the Persians were already in their ships, a shield was flashed as a signal to them on the summit of Pentelicus. Who held up the shield, and what did the signal mean? The popular explanation in later days was that it invited the Persians to sail straight for Athens and the enemies of the Alcmeonids said that they were the treacherous authors of the signal. Herodotus doubted the explanation, but he was convinced that the flashing of the shield was a well-attested fact. In the holiest place of Greece, in the sanctuary of Delphi itself, have been found in recent years remains of the noblest monument of the victory of Marathon. Out of the Persian spoils, the Athenians built a little Doric treasure-house of marble from their own Pentelic quarries. 
It seems to have been a gem of architecture, worthy of the severe grace of the sculptured reliefs which ran round the inside of the building and have been safely preserved under its ruins. The sculptures represent the deeds of Theseus and of Heracles, and the battle of the gods and giants. The descendants of the Marathonian warriors derived perhaps their most vivid idea of the combat from a picture of it, which was painted about a quarter of a century later, one of the famous battle pictures in the portico of frescoes in the marketplace. In one scene the Athenians and Plataeans advanced against the trousered barbarians. In a second the Persians in their flight pushed each other into the marsh, and in the last the Phoenician ships were portrayed and the Greeks slaying the foemen who were striving to reach the ships. Callimachus, Miltiades, Datis and Artaphernes, Cynegyrus seizing the prow of a ship, could all be recognised, and Theseus, who was believed to have given phantom aid to the warriors, seemed to rise out of the earth. High above the raging strife, the artist, Mycon was his name, showed the gods and goddesses as they surveyed from the tranquillity of Olympus the prowess of their Greeks smiting the profane destroyers of the holy places of Eretria. The significance of the victory of Marathon as a triumph for Athens, for Greece, for Europe, cannot be gainsaid, but we must take care not to misapprehend its meaning for Greece and for Athens herself. That significance is unmistakable even if we minimise the immediate peril which was averted. The Asiatic invader had perhaps not yet come to annex. He had come only to chastise. It was enough for him if the rest of the Greeks looked on with respectful awe while he meted out their doom to the two offending cities. His work in Euboea had been purely a work of demolition. He had not sought to annex territory or add a satrapy to the Persian dominion. The Cyclad Islands and Charistus had indeed been compelled to submit to the formal authority of the great king, but it is not proved that Darius thought of reducing the western coasts of the Aegean to the subject condition of Ionia. Thus the danger which menaced Athens may not have been subjection to an Asiatic despot, nor was she threatened by the doom of destruction and slavery which befell Eretria. The Persian army had come to restore Hippias, and assuredly Darius did not purpose to restore his friend to a city of smouldering temples. The Athenians would be condemned to bow beneath the yoke of their own tyrant. They would not become, like their Eretrian fellows, the bondmen of a barbarian master. To be delivered over to an aged despot, thirsting for power and vengeance, embittered by twenty years of weary exile, this was the punishment of the Athenians, and this was the fate which they escaped by their valour on the field of Marathon. If they had lost that battle and the rule of the Pisistratids had been restored, the work of twenty years ago would have had to be done again. But that it would have been done again there can be hardly a doubt. The defeat of the Athenians would have arrested, it would not have closed, their development. It might even be argued that it would have saved Greece the terrible trial of the later Persian invasion, if that invasion was undertaken solely to wipe out the ignominy of the repulsive Marathon. 
Probably, if Datis had been victorious, the subsequent attempt of Persia to conquer Greece would have assumed a different shape. But the attempt would assuredly have been made. The history of the world does not depend on proximate causes. The clash of Greece and Persia, the effort of Persia to expand at the cost of Greece, were inevitable. From the higher point of view it was not a question of vengeance. Where Darius stopped, the successors of Darius would undoubtedly go on. The success of Marathon inspirited Greece to withstand the later and greater invasion, but the chief consequence was the effect which it wrought upon the spirit of Athens herself. The enormous prestige which she won by the single-handed victory over the host of the great king gave her a new self-confidence and ambition. History seemed to have set a splendid seal on her democracy. She felt that she could trust her constitution, and that she might lift her head as high as any state in Hellas. The Athenians always looked back to Marathon as marking an epoch. It was as if on that day the gods had said to them, Go on and prosper. The great battle immortalized Miltiades, but his latter end was not good. His services at Marathon could not fail to gain for him increased influence and respect at Athens. His fellow citizens granted him, on his own proposal, a commission to attack the island of Paros, for the Parians had furnished a trireme to the armament of Datis and had thereby made war upon Athens. Miltiades besieged the city of Paros for twenty-six days, but without success, and then returned home wounded. The failure was imputed to criminal conduct of the general. His enemies, jealous of his exploits in the Marathonian campaign, accused him of deceiving the people, and he was fined fifty talents, a heavy fine. It is not known what his alleged wrongdoing was, but afterwards, when the legend of Miltiades grew, and the part which he played in the campaign of Marathon was unduly magnified, it was foolishly said that he persuaded the Athenians to entrust the fleet to him, promising to take them to a land of gold, and that he deceived them by assailing Paros to gratify a private revenge. At Paros itself, in the temple of Demeter, the tale was told that when the siege seemed hopeless, he corrupted a priestess of the goddess named Timo, and that, coming to meet her in a sanctuary to which only women were admitted, he was seized with panic, and in his flight, leaping the fence of the precinct, hurt his leg. Certain it is that he returned wounded to Athens, however he came by the chance, appeared on a couch at his trial, and died soon after his condemnation. End of chapter 6, part 7 Recording by Graham Redmond